So today uh, is really kind of an exciting day for me because we've reached another milestone in our, in our look through this amazing book of the Psalms, a look that we started, believe it or not, uh, exactly two years ago this month, uh, June 22nd of 2018, uh, and that brings us all the way today to Psalm 100. Is there anybody here that's, that's heard and been to all, the, all 99 besides my wife? <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. Oh, Bill and Pay, okay. Well, congratulations if you have, you survived. Uh, I thought somebody was about to clap for a second. <laughs> but I have to tell you, you know, what really amazed me about this psalm was even though it, it's one of the shortest of the collection, it's just five verses, there really was so much we could have said about it this morning. Uh, for you musicians that, that are here, you guys, you, you may already know this, but Psalm 100 was the inspiration for lots of different pieces of music. Uh, from Queen Elizabeth II's coronation hymn, uh, arranged by Ralph Vaughan Williams in 1953, uh, to the version in our, our celebration hymnal, uh, All People That on Earth Do Well. You guys might know that song. It was written by William Keith in 1565. And then if you go back a little further uh, to Louis Bourgeois and his work on the Geneva Psalter, where he took Psalm 100 and composed a score for it that had become the doxology that we sing every single Sunday in the offering. Right? Uh, so that's one way we could have gone. We could have talked about how uh, Psalm 100 caps off this little cluster that we've been looking at, uh, Psalms 95 to 100, that speak to us about the universal kingship of God and about his rule and reign over not just the, the nation of Israel, but over all people everywhere, and of his love and justice that he brings to bear in the person of his son and the salvation that he makes available to us in Christ. Uh, we also could have taken this text and branched off and covered the attributes of praise and worship. Uh, Miss Barbara mentioned to me this morning how much she loves uh, Psalm 100 for its, its worship text. We could have talked about the ways that God has told us in his word that he wants to be worshipped which unfortunately aren't always the ways that the 21st century American church uh, offers up worship anymore these days. Uh, we could have taken this text and gone the route of reminding ourselves through Psalm 100 that we have a duty and an obligation to be thankful to God, uh, a God who provides not only all of our uh, basic daily physical needs, but gives us super abundant blessings far beyond anything that we could hope to deserve. But I think what I really want to do is, uh, is take the text and, and kind of narrow it down, narrow the focus like we did last week when we looked at God's attribute of justice. Uh, and well, I want to kind of do that again today and concentrate on another element of God's character. Uh, and this morning, that attribute is the attribute of truth. So I guess we could say we're going to talk about the truth that God is truth. So let's read the, the psalm together. And then we'll, we'll jump into the, to the message. So this is Psalm 100. It's superscribed a psalm for giving thanks. And the psalmist writes, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He's God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter his courts with thanksgiving and his gates with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is God. 
His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures to all generations. Let's pray. God, our Father, as we, as we open Your ancient word in this book of the Psalms, uh, we ask you, Lord, to open our ears to Your word. Speak to us, Father, today from this, uh, from this hymn book, uh, this book which Your people have sung and prayed from for the last 3,000 years, and make the text come alive by the power of Your Holy Spirit today. Father, uh, remove uh, my muddy fingerprints from this message and all human effort that has pulled it together uh, and show us Jesus for his sake, Lord, and for your glory. Amen. So if you remember last week, we, uh, we talked about the clamor for justice that seems to be rampant in our society right now and the fact that really few, if, if any, have any idea what genuine justice really entails and i think we could almost say that same thing about the concept of truth right like the the pastor that i I read about that was walking down the street and he he comes upon a a group of boys his neighborhood boys and and he noticed they're all all grouped around what looks like a little lost dog Uh, and he was concerned maybe they were were hurting the dog so he goes over and 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 asks what are you what are you boys doing well the one boy said well Pastor, this is just an old neighborhood dog, and, and we all want him, but only one of us can take him home. So uh, we've decided that whichever one of us can tell the biggest lie is going to get to keep him. Okay? Well, so now immediately the pastor went from being upset over the welfare of the dog to being upset over the spiritual welfare of these boys. And he launched into a 10-minute sermon against the sin of lying, complete with, with scripture texts and, and sermon illustrations. And when he finally felt like maybe he was getting through to them, he, he wrapped up his message by saying, well, you know, boys, when I was your age, I never told a lie. And, and then there was dead silence for about a minute until the littlest guy gave a deep sigh and spoke up and looked at his buddies and said, well, I guess Pastor won the contest. Give him the dog. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know when it comes to, to truth really and maybe you guys have noticed this how it's very common in today's world in our, our post-christian new age mindset for for us to hear people say things like i'm going to stand up and speak my truth uh, or to say okay let, let's agree to disagree because you have your truth and and i have mine uh, or to hear people say, well, if you believe it, then it's, it's true for you, and if I don't, then it's not. And all of these ideas kind of promulgated and, and widely accepted on the premise that there is no such thing as actual truth. The truth is, is something purely subjective and, and personal, little more than a matter of an individual insisting that what they would like to be true is true simply because they wish it so. But, brothers and sisters, the truth is that truth itself exists. There, there is no such thing as my truth, or your truth, or, or his truth, or her truth. There is just the truth, God's truth. Uh, and we read about that today in Psalm 100, verse 5. We're told uh, his truth endures to all generations. Right? It's not just a, a, a temporary thing. And that, that verse, Psalm 100, verse 5, is the perfect verse to really dig into that idea because the Hebrew word used there for truth uh, is emunah. So I'll give you a Hebrew word to get your money's worth. Right? 
it's a it's a word that packs a whole lot of meaning into the text because it carries with it the idea of firmness uh, and steadiness and, and constancy and, and fidelity. Uh, it means something that can be completely relied on. Right? I'll give you another 50 cent word, right? The Greek translation, if you take a look at it of Psalm 100, uh, the one, this is actually the text that Jesus and the disciples would have read in first century Israel from the Septuagint. The word for truth there is aletheia, which means to unhide. And I think I almost like that version better. I like that thought better because it conveys the idea that truth is always just there. It's always open. It's available. It's visible. It's obvious to everyone. The only downside, humanly speaking, would be that God's truth is still plain and it's still trustworthy even if people don't want it to be. Even if we don't like it. Even if we don't agree with it. You know, the Apostle Paul expanded on that idea in Romans chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 18, when he says, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know that, thank you. Yeah, I, you know, you, you guys are free to say amen in here if there's something you agree with. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools and they traded the truth about God for a lie. You know, the Apostle Paul is saying here, uh, here we all are in a world in which the truth about God is literally breaking out all around us, but humanity is busy covering it up. We're busy hiding it. We're busy suppressing it. We're busy keeping it from pervading our thinking and dominating our decision-making and keeping ourselves intentionally blinded to the truth of Psalm 100, verse 3, that says, The Lord, He's God. It's He who made us, and we are His. Some, if you're following along, some of your versions may say, uh, It's He who made us and not we ourselves. Like, hello. right? Because He is the holy, sovereign God of eternal power and majesty who created mankind and has the right the only right to determine the boundaries of right and wrong. And everybody knows it, whether they want to admit it or not. Because the scriptures say that there is available to every person a certain knowledge of God. A knowledge attainable by at least observing his works in creation. So just, just think about it with me like this. You know, just like we can learn a lot uh, about a writer from studying his work. Uh, or uh, about a painter from his painting, so too we can learn about God from the wonders that he's made. Think about this. Who, who can take a look at the raging flow of Niagara Falls and not be struck by the force of the one that created it? What scientist can study the energy of an atom and not be impressed with the infinite power of the one who made it? Who can ponder the vastness of the universe without concluding that someone far greater than mortal man was the originator of it all, and yet humanity suppresses the truth? We know all of these things, but, but all of us, you and, and me, everyone listening to this message, 
we suppress it because we're all born with a want to. Right? Vicky talks about that in Good News Club. Right? We are, we're all born with the attitude that we just want what we want when we want it. And if you've ever raised a newborn baby, you know that's true, right? <laughs> but you see, if, if unchecked, it doesn't take long for that to seep from our individual attitudes into the cultural norms. And, and good heavens, all you have to do is turn on TV and you, you can see I'm not lying to you. Right? It leads to a society that says, we know what's right. We know the truth. We just don't care. We just don't care. And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of this. And this is one of the things in... in uh, the academy that's really led to the part where we are right now. If you guys are familiar with Aldous Huxley, if you've ever had to study his work, English writer and philosopher from the 50s and 60s, writing about the idea of objective truth, I want you to hear what he says. See if this sounds familiar. He wrote, For myself, as for no doubt most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless or of no ultimate truth was essentially an instrument of liberation from any certain system of morality. And he said, we objected to morality because it interfered with our sexual, political, and economic freedom. He said, for the philosopher in a world with no truth and no meaning, there's no valid reason why he should not personally do as he wants, or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. And he says, there was one simple method of us confuting moralists and at the same time justifying our own political and sexually erotic revolt. He said, and that was to deny that the world had any meaning. Right? See, they were, that, that group was saying in the 60s, and we're still saying in the world today, uh, don't talk to me about truth. Don't, don't tell me about objective morality. Don't talk to me about God or about Christ or about saying, you just live your life and I'll live mine. And brothers and sisters, very sadly, the church has bought into that model and has backed off in, in many areas from making truth claims and from standing on the word and from condemning the world in order to call it back to repentance because we don't want to offend anybody. And we've allowed ourselves to be brainwashed by the education system and by the media to think that we've got to keep our beliefs to ourselves in order for us to be a part of polite society. But, you know, the folks that say that confuse the idea of having a private faith with having a personal faith. And if you remember, I talked to you about this back in Psalm 95 when we started on this little grouping that we've been looking at together. Because folks, like we said, a personal faith and a private faith are definitely not the same thing. Uh, our faith is and must be personal. But if it's genuine, it is not and it must not be private. Please hear me on that. Our, our faith must be personal. But if it's genuine, it is not and must not be private. If faith is, is really personal, if it's personally transformed you, how could you keep it a secret? How could you keep it a secret? And don't mishear me. I'm not, I'm not saying we're supposed to go around with a holier-than-thou attitude, uh, beating people over the heads with our Bibles. No. But we need to be like a, a traveler who's discovered a source of fresh water in the middle of a desert and we want to point other people to it so they don't die of thirst. And brothers and sisters, there are folks right outside those doors and maybe even within these walls that are dying right now. They're dying physically and they're dying spiritually right this minute because we don't take a minute to share the truth of the gospel with them. 
And when we don't do that, those folks just go right on rejecting God's revelation of himself and replacing it, or as the Apostle Paul said, exchanging it with something else. Exchanging it for something false, something untrue. And the danger there is, as G.K. Chesterton said, when you stop believing in God and his truth, it's not that you end up believing in nothing, but rather you could end up believing almost anything. Right? When you stop believing in God and his truth, there's not the danger that you'll end up believing nothing. The danger is you can be made to believe almost anything. And when that happens, Paul says, then God abandons uh, the world and people to do whatever shameful things their heart desires. Uh, you could interpret that quite literally, to do whatever turns them on. Meaning that to a great extent, the judgment of God on humanity is getting exactly what we want. Whatever that particular want happens to be. Because, brothers and sisters, every sin, the, the public ones and, and the private ones, uh, the socially acceptable ones and, and the ones we don't talk about in company, uh, every sin, as we said last week, is cosmic treason against the majesty of Christ. It, it's spitting in the face of our Creator. And, and when we do that, when humanity rejects God's revelation of Himself, He just gives us over to idolatry and over to falsehood, to worship the things that God has made instead of the God who made them. Because humanity says, God, we want you to leave us alone. We, we don't want your controls. And so God gives to humanity what they've asked for while they're here on earth uh, and for an eternity of separation from him in the future. Because the truth is every single sin that's ever been committed or will be committed will one day be paid for in full. One day it's going to be paid in one of two ways either by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross for those that are in him, or by the punishment of hell. And, and, and when you put all of those thoughts together, what a terrifying thing it is that when men and women freely suppress the truth of the gospel, then hell is just the culmination of what that man or that woman freely asked for, being freely given exactly what they asked for. And of God confirming uh, the truth of his promise to bless obedience and to curse rebellion. And, and to ultimately and honestly make a distinction between those who Psalm 100 calls the sheep of his pasture and those who just look like sheep on the outside. Right? Between the, the sheep and the goats. Between those who are members of the, the visible church that we can see seated around us here uh, and the invisible church. Those are the ones that Christ sees when he looks out over the congregation and knows those that are truly his because brothers and sisters god isn't fooled by someone just mechanically reciting the apostles creed every sunday he isn't fooled by mindlessly uh having someone repeat the lord's prayer he's not impressed if you have a giant red schofield reference bible in the middle of your coffee table because he sees your heart see and those things might fool people but they don't fool god in the least because god's one question to all of those things is what effect does the truth contained inside those things have on the inside of you? Right? What effect does the truth contained inside those things have on the inside of you? Or as the, uh, the Gospel of John says, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Right? That's the same indictment that Paul was bringing against the recipients of his letter to the Romans. Uh, a letter addressed, remember, not to the, the pagan world. He wrote that to a church. To the church in Rome and he basically said to them you claim to know all of these truths about God 
But the real issue is that you don't practice what you preach. Because you say you believe one thing, but you do another. And try to hide behind your good works. As one commentator said, that's the, the hardest person to reach with the truth of the gospel is the one that clings to something faulty as his assurance of right standing with God. And whether that's you know, church attendance or whether you think you go to heaven because your daddy was a pastor or you donated a million dollars to the endowment fund or you're a whiz at Bible trivia. And those things are great. But whatever those things are for us, they have to be stripped away and the real truth of our lives unhidden. And I'll give you just a really quick example kind of of how that works. We talked about this in Bible study too. This is my, what, my third mention of Bible study, so if you don't get the idea, it's like Bible study Wednesday, 3 o'clock, right? You miss a lot when you don't come. Um, but you, most of you guys know, or a lot of you know, that I spent a lot of time after high school studying the fine arts. Uh, and in the art and work of classical sculpture, there's a technical term called hyperseeing. Uh, hyperseeing is a term used to describe, and we, like we talked about this Wednesday, to describe an artist's ability to look at a... At a, a, a piece of marble or an unformed rock and see it in four-dimensional space and know what it's going to look like as a finished piece of sculpture. Uh, when Michelangelo carved a, a really large altarpiece entitled The Angel for the Basilica of uh, San Domenico, he said every block of stone has a statue inside it and it's the task of the sculptor to discover it. And he said, I saw the angel inside the marble and I carved and carved until I set it free. And that kind of hyper-seeing is also a good description of how our all-seeing God sees and works on us because He sees all that we are and more. And, and He looks past the surface and he, he sees things that we try to conceal and He exposes the truth of our hearts uh, and He calls things like He sees them whether we like it or not. Because as the Word says, even if everyone is a liar, God is true. And that, being able to say that is the confession of a person that's grasped the truth of the infallible word of God and who acknowledges that our only hope of a future where we're saved and, and where we're destined to be sanctified is the truth of God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. A God who's not fooled by our appearance or, or thrown off the trail by subterfuge or, or placated by fake religion but a God that has a plan for our perfection that he's working on and that he's working out until that image is complete. Until the, the contents on the inside matches the plan of the carver and of the sculptor. Uh, until we truly surrender ourselves into the master's hand so that we can, in the words of Psalm 100, really enter his gates with thanksgiving. So we can come into his courts with praise and give thanks to him. And so we can bless his name and come into his presence with singing. And we can do all of that singing and praising because we've had an encounter with the creator of our lives and with the Christ who came not just to proclaim truth, but to be the one way to find it, to be the only life that ever really lived it out. And one day and one day soon to return in glory uh, truly for every eye to see, for every tongue to confess when all of the world will behold him coming in the clouds of heaven, the one who the Bible calls faithful and true, the one in whose name today I ask you, do you really know him? And better yet, does he know you? Uh, and if you're not sure, uh, ask the Holy Spirit to open your heart as we pray.
Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you uh, that you do see us uh, as we are. You see all that's ugly inside of us, but you love us anyway. Uh, We thank you, Father, for that. We thank you for your mercy and for your favor and for your grace that lifts us up uh, and holds us next to you and says, I love you. And so, Father, we ask that you would move by your Holy Spirit, that all who hear this message that don't know you as their Lord and Savior would be moved in heart and mind to receive you, Uh, that those that do know you, Lord, would be strengthened and encouraged by the beauty of your love. And we ask, Lord, you be with us as we go out this week to share this message uh, and to reach other people in your name and for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand for uh, the Apostles' Creed and for our closing hymn. Brothers and sisters, let's confess together what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.